too closely to the green light at the end of Daisy's dot. No, there was no question about it. Forget the light. Just keep your head down and stay on the ride. Wood felt lucky to know such a thing, and if his morning workout with Sook didn't make it clear, the walls of his study were lined with the favored novels of three generations of Macklemore's. Books that were full of myopic, vainglorious fools who had not only failed to appreciate the ride, they had gotten off, like some fevered hobo is looking for Big Rock Candy Mountain, and wandered stupidly into irony, mayhem, and even the jaws of a killer whale. That wasn't Wood. He knew what a fine meal had been laid upon his table. He retrieved the whiskey bottle from the hip pocket of his pajama bottoms and unscrewed the cap. Oh... Slow her down now, girl. That's the way. He coaxed Sook as she adjusted her pace to his need. He brought the flask to his lips, turning it up full tilt and draining the remainder of the whiskey inside. It went down smooth, warming him like the maple syrup May Ethel used to make for his pancakes. Try as he might, he had never been able to reproduce for his own children the thick, sweet texture that flowed like a small mudslide across and then down the lightest, fluffiest pancakes ever poured on a griddle, nor could the cooks at the local waffle house, despite his meticulous embellishments. Fluffy was not a word Wood used often, but that's what they were, damn it. They were fluffy, and he missed them. He missed May Ethel, too. For some reason he thought of her whenever he drank whiskey. Maybe that was her secret ingredient for the syrup, or maybe it was just that the liquor and the woman warmed him, especially on fall mornings like this when he rode without a shirt. Ah, May Ethel, his jolly, all-knowing angel who was colored when he first knew her but later became black. The person who used to scoop him up like warm laundry and press him against her huge, pillowy bosom, laughing her high-pitched approval at his simplest declaration. His parents were equally doting, but it was May Ethel who physically loved him up each day, squeezing his flesh, swinging him, holding him. May Ethel, filling every inch of the doorway with her hands-on-hips massive presence, a symphony of happy human noise moving joyfully through the Macklemore house. May Ethel, who had no expectations and therefore no judgments of him other than do right and be happy, and who had been born before self-esteem was discovered, but had somehow managed to electrify her charge with the simple admonition, Study hard now, Peaches. It wasn't a warning, really, it was more like a good tip, but by the time she said it, she had already filled him up with so much highly combustible good stuff, all she had to do was light the match and the boy was on fire. He would have slain any dragon, conquered any portal of academia to please her. For May Ethel, he would become the greatest this or that who ever lived, the swellest human, the champion, king, and valedictorian of everything. Once he had ridden his bike to her house without permission and seen that she had children of her own, seen her actually hugging, holding, and swinging them in their yard. He was inconsolable for days. He was May Ethel's boy, who knew she was a widow and had never even considered that there could be anyone else. That was the power of their connection. 
That was why he had attempted to immortalize her in his English comp short story at Duke, the one where his professor had unbelievably given him a D for building a story around a cartoon-like character and fostering unimaginative racial stereotypes. Well, you know what? Fuck him. And the horse he rode in on. Who did that asshole think he was, anyway? It was May Ethel he was writing about, not Aunt Jemima. It was the only D Wood had ever received, and it happened because he was at a southern school where intellectual southerners, the ever-vigilant keepers of the New South, were not about to let some rich, smart-ass white kid wax eloquent about colored servants. Wood's dad said he should have gone to Yale or even Columbia, where he had also been accepted. New Yorkers love Southerners who write about their mammies. Hell, they would even throw a party for you. He brought the flask up to his lips again. Then, when it surrendered nothing, went back to cursing. It was just as well the flask was empty. He was beginning to feel the whiskey, and he had a hysterectomy later in the day, though thankfully not a full one. Wood hated removing ovaries because doing so made him feel mean, as though he himself had personally snuffed out a woman's femaleness, though he knew it wasn't so. Of course, if medically dictated, he would do it, but he never failed to be surprised by how many of his patients wanted him to make the call, how easily they surrendered their most private places and thoughts to him. Lately, when he was in the middle of a gynecological exam or even surgery, he'd been struck with the overwhelming sensation that he was an imposter. What right did he have choosing chemo over fertility, deciding what goes and what stays, and who should or should not have children, all this because you tested well in math and science? He was burnt out. That was the reason he was getting home later and later and channel surfing and reading till all hours of the morning. Well, not all hours, just till Milan went to sleep. Then he wouldn't have to worry about her pressing her breasts and pelvis into his backside, running her tongue along the nape of his neck, behind his ears, inside his ears, and dragging her finger, just one, slowly down his spine, then down the back of each thigh, ending at his feet and kissing his insteps for a long, long, long time. I mean, who had a wife who after twenty years still relished these things? It was unbelievable. Milan, who was so into perfection, got up every morning and put on makeup before she would let him see her, so into her club meetings and small-town triumphs, Miss, I may have come from the wrong side of the tracks, but I can sure as hell run this committee and be better looking than anybody on it. No one in Paris would have guessed the desire and abandon that poured out of her in bed. Desire that he had made it his business to meet in full for their entire married life. The girl who hadn't gotten enough of anything had attached herself to the boy who was overflowing, and it was good. So good, in fact, that he had never strayed. Not once. They didn't want the same things. They hadn't even gotten married for the right reason. But who can say what the right reason is? One of his elderly patients got married because he needed someone to drive him to the Rexall and the dandy dog. Anyway, no matter what doubts he and Milan harbored about each other, the raw, unrestrained joy of their physical union eclipsed everything.
raw, unrestrained joy of their physical union? Now he knew he was drunk. That sounded like a damn romance novel. But there it was, and this is the truth. It didn't matter if they were even speaking. As long as they could get their clothes off and wrap their arms and legs around each other with him turning her like some flesh-colored kaleidoscope so that they never ran out of sexual configurations, and as long as Milan could feast on him for hours, sometimes, he thought, trying to eat her way into his soul, not that it would do her any good to get there, they weren't soul mates. They were fornicators extraordinaire and Charlie and Elizabeth's parents, and that was about it. But as long as the sex stayed so deliciously damn good, well, then they would still have that. But the problem was, he was losing his appetite for it, for her, and she could sense the absence of his enthusiasm, as though he had already been unfaithful. Wood turned Sook around a wide half circle and started back toward the old meandering farmhouse built by his grandfather Macklemore. He loved every board and brick of it as much as the house he'd grown up in with his parents, especially the old back porch with the kerosene lamp. Milan had since converted it with a tall ship etched on the globe, and the fold-out hide-a-bed with the feather pillows and dank old quilts where he and his grandfather slept after Bell died. This was where his pa had read to him Great Expectations, Treasure Island, Peterson's A Field Guide to Birds, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and Tarzan. Milan had recovered the hide-a-bed with some sissy designer animal print because she thought it would please him. He never made love to her on it again.